The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, he will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Good afternoon, Coachella Valley. I am Randy Florence, and you're listening in to the second episode of the Coachella Valley Chronicles. If you're here again, you either liked the first show or I made you feel like anybody could do this and you just wanted to show up again. Ten years ago, I moved to the Valley from Northern California from an area of about 7 million people. When I got to this valley and found out I could meet and talk to people in town who were part of building the valley, I got pretty excited. I'm a history buff, and there is so much history in this valley and so many people willing to talk about it. As I met more of these people and heard more of the stories of our growth in history, I thought, I have got to share some of these. I'm a citizen of the Coachella Valley asking the questions that you might want to. One other reason I wanted to do this show We've uh, faced some pretty hard times over the last year here at the Coachella Valley. And I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to tell the stories of the people uh, that have uh, faced some of our challenges in the past and drove some of the direction and vision that was needed in order to make us a little more successful here. Before we get to our first guest today, I wanted to incorporate something else into the uh, show each week, a little bit of history of the Valley. As I do these shows, I'm able to uh, do some research and find out some very interesting things that I'd love to share with you. One of the things I found this weekend is that the city of Indio was, uh, originally was supposed to be called Indian Wells. I read a book called Indio, The Images of America by Patricia Baker Laughlin, and she talked about uh, Indio and the Kawea Indians, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle that changed forever when the railroad came through Coachella Valley. It was originally going to be called Indian Wells, not Indio, but they found out that the name Indian Wells already appeared on a government map five or six uh, miles to the west where there was a walk-in well and a camping spot, so they had to come up with a new name. Life in Indio centered around the railroad depot. In the late 1800s, it had about 50 inhabitants, mostly men, storekeepers, mostly working for the railroad. An amazing amount of culture was provided as the pioneer women began to arrive, making sure that music, literature, and good schooling were available. Indio was literally one of the country's last frontier towns, And when its citizens voted to incorporate in 1930, it turned it into Coachella Valley's first incorporated city. So a little bit of history about Indio. Now I'd like to move into the main part of the the show here. My guest today has only been in this desert for about 10 years. We talk to people here on the show that are uh, people who have a vision and have helped grow this valley to where it is. So the fact that this gentleman has only been here for about 10 years tells you he's already had an impact. His influence over the Coachella Valley has been huge and far-reaching. He's received many awards and accolades. He received the CSU San Bernardino Spirit of Entrepreneur Award, the R&D Top 100 Award, the Clean Air Award, the Indiana University Growth 100 Award, 
He graduated from Stanford University with an MS in mechanical engineering and has earned technical certifications from Mar Harvard and MIT. He may truly be the Valley's version of the world's most interesting man, and he has reinvented himself several times. I've had the honor to work with my guest over the last several years in his position as CEO and Chief Innovation Officer for CBEP, the Coachella Valley Economic Partnership. I'd like to welcome to the show today my guest, Joe Wallace. Joe, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for being the guest on the second episode of the Coachella Valley Chronicles. Well, my pleasure. Great to have you here, Joe. You know, one of the things that I like to do, we're going to talk a lot about the, the desert and some of the work that you've done here, but I'm always interested um, about the people that, that helped grow the desert and kind of what motivated them to that point. You know, in the time that I've gotten to know you, I'm just amazed at how you're involved in so much locally and your passion for the important things in your life. And I'm fascinated in how classic overachievers get that way, Joe. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your early years. Did you automatically start off on a path towards this success? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I was an only child until I was nine. And uh, so, so I went to first grade being able to read at about a fourth grade level. And, you know, my mother didn't work. And so she taught me all of the things that you usually learn in the first through the third grade. And uh, which, which made the first three years of school pretty easy for me. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to redo everything I'd learned at home. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I was identified as, uh, you know, one of these gifted kids, so to speak, at a very young age and uh, worked real hard for 10 or 11 years uh, trying to prove everybody wrong. <laughs> <laughs> tried to prove that you weren't the gifted kid <laughs> precisely and, and and i was successful at convincing several people of such things <laughs> congratulations but, uh, you know I get... <laughs> and and you know every once in a while i have a few days that i uh and I've, I've tried to convince you two or three times that, that i just needed to go home and you, <laughs> you keep you keep re reinvigorating my uh, enthusiasm for the job that I have to do. And uh, don't let me talk you into firing me. How's that? No, uh, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> You're way too important to this. But I, I want to go back a little bit, Joe. You, in some of our conversations last week, you were telling me about the influence uh, and you talked about your parents uh, growing up. Your, your, um, your father was a heavy influence on you. What, what can you tell me about your relationship with him? Uh, I always had a good relationship with him, uh, but I think, you know, like a lot of uh, young males, I was a little bit afraid of him. You know, he was the principal of the elementary school where uh, I attended, and uh, he had a reputation around town for having an electric paddle. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's whipped almost every kid <laughs> that grew up in Sturgis, Kentucky, except me. My dad never laid a paddle on me in my entire life. Uh, and, and I don't think he got my brother either. And there were only two of us. So, uh, you know, he, he always said that he used that just to maintain order in the classroom. Said that when a couple of uh, clowns or troublemakers were keeping the other kids from being able to learn, the reason for paddling was not 
you know, it was just to, to maintain order. And everybody in that town was afraid of him, and, and I was too, but I never got on the, on the receiving end of that. Interesting. Your, your dad was actually part of uh, General Patton's army, wasn't he? Yeah, yes, he was. Uh, he uh, joined the army, I believe, in November after he would have graduated high school in maybe 1942. And uh, he was in Patton's army. He became a corporal, and he was in the uh, invasion of North Africa and and went all across where uh, Patton chased Rommel and, and then o- over into Sicily. And then when they landed in uh, Italy uh, near a town called Monte Cassino, that's where the Volturno River uh, comes in, and and uh, there was a large World War II battle there, and then he was captured. Uh, they were building a bridge over that river, and he was among the first people to cross it. And uh, the Germans uh, capt- captured uh, like a dozen or so of them, and uh, he was lucky because the ones that didn't get across the bridge, they weren't captured. A lot of them uh, became casualties, hmm. and uh, and they sent him off to uh I guess what what they'd call a concentration camp, POW camp, and he he was in there for two years. Uh, You know, my brother and I uh, had the privilege a few years ago of flying to Italy, and we actually walked right across that river and uh, saw where he was. That must have been very powerful, Joe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so he he spent his time there, and he said one day they woke up and, and the Germans were gone. And they started walking, and they walked uh, however long it took to uh, reach Allied forces. And then he he came home and became a school principal by going to college on the uh, GI Bill. That's fascinating. Did did you feel like your dad was impacted throughout his life by that time um, as a POW? Oh, absolutely. You know, he would uh, wake up speaking German. Ooh. And uh, and he only knew a few words of German, but it, when he would sleep and have nightmares, uh, he uh, he knew it. And you know, but he told a few stories, but he didn't say much about it. But he he always sought to be in a position of security. Hmm. You know, so he he went to work for a school system as a teacher as soon as he graduated college, and he retired from that same school t- system as a principal, maybe 35 years later. That's fascinating. Now, I, I know your mom was not just a housewife. She was pretty active during uh, the early years of her marriage, right? Uh, you know, she worked in a bank hmm. uh, and, and saved up uh, enough, saved every penny she got. And uh, after four years, that became the down payment on their $6,000 house. And, uh, you know, I remember them burning the note when I was in middle school and they finished making all of those $35 a month payments, you know, so <laughs> you know how boys do they, you know, you sort of, sort of rebel a little bit. And I think that my dad's seek, seeking security was part of the reason that I've been seeking entrepreneurial opportunities. It's like, you know, okay, you know, we had a good life, but, uh, I kind of like to play with fire, and, and, and I think if he if he would have played with fire, I might have been a security seeker. Who knows? Um, were were your um, what what caused you to move out west, Joe? Um, I, uh, I got accepted to the graduate school of engineering at uh, Stanford in 1984. And uh, moved out there, and I simultaneously got a job offer from a company called Verbatim, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they're famous for the floppy disk. Uh, you know, a lot of people have heard of them. I know you and I have talked. We worked about a mile apart That's during right. those days, but yep. but uh, we didn't know each other. And so I came out uh, for the job at Verbatim and for the opportunity to go to graduate school at Stanford. And Verbatim, uh, they, they saw me as one of these guys that they can say, we want something that does this, and it doesn't exist yet. And uh, so we had a team of about 10 people. And, uh, you know, they let me come and go at will. I could, you know, if I had a class at 10, I just go on to class and then come in. It was kind of like telecommuting, except I had to go to the classroom and then show, show up with analysis and parts designed to, to build what became the world's first three and a half inch uh, erasable optical disc recorder. That's going back a ways. Do you still have any of those floppies? Uh, yeah, but I don't have anything that'll play them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the problem. I found uh, about two months ago, I found a cassette tape of a recording of my wife and my wedding from 1981, but I can't find a cassette player anywhere. So, Joe, we're, uh, when we come back, I want, to, uh, I want to move a little bit further as you move into your entrepreneurial career here. Everybody, you are listening to the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. We are here on iHub Radio with my guest, Joe Wallace. Joe, thanks again for being here today. Uh, When we left uh, the last segment, you had mentioned Stanford, but Stanford was not your first college experience, correct? That is correct. So I, I, I want uh, I, I want to draw this line. Um, Stanford in the middle of a, a very large area with about seven million people. So I want to make sure everybody understands that was a really long road from where you came from. Yes, yes, it was. I grew up in a uh, rural town in Kentucky named Sturgis. Uh, if you've heard of it, it's probably because of a. Uh, uh, a Me Too motorcycle rally they have there. There's a big one in a Sturgis place in South Dakota, but there's a little one in Sturgis, Kentucky. <laughs> uh, population's a little under 2,000 people. And uh, the entire county that I come from, and there's just one high school in the county, is 15,000 people, and uh, most of the high school classes are about 150. Uh, my first college experience, however, was in uh, Appalachia, uh, I got a, a, a two-year degree in associates in forestry from uh, Hazard Community College. And, yes, that is the same place that the TV show was patterned after. Uh, <laughs> Do you have the car? <laughs> huh? Do you have the car? Yeah, the guy that had the car, John John Schneider or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> drove, drove around a car named after General Lee. And uh, that's where I went to uh, community college was up, up there. And they're, they're – 
forestry program was actually in a town called Quicksand, Kentucky. It was a very short time, short way uh, from from the city of Hazard, and uh, so that that's where I got started in uh, college. And you know, I got my associate's degree in forestry and proceeded to to go get a job making furniture and setting up equipment to to make parts that go into furniture. And uh, it uh, it was repairing machines and reading the papers uh, and seeing how much money engineers made that after working two or three years, I think it was three uh, in Memphis and in Eastern Texas. uh, And and I was a homeowner. I saved enough and got my down payment, had my first house and everything and sold it. And uh, it's like, let's hit the reset button and go back and uh, get that engineering degree that I probably should have known that I was was in the third grade, but I didn't Hmm. Uh, graduated from high school. And I didn't know that the garbage man and a surgeon didn't make the same amount of money. I had absolutely no concept of what different careers would uh, lead to lifestyles on. And so that, that was kind of odd. That is odd. Uh, How did you find out? uh, They did. Um, reading newspapers and uh, <laughs> looking at people that uh, drove around in Benzes and BMWs when I'd never, I didn't see one until I was about 20. <laughs> like a rich person would have a used Cadillac in, in rural Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. So, so tell me the time frame. When did you move to Northern California? Uh, it was uh, February of 1984. Just in time to uh, to work a little bit on those three and a half inch floppy disk that they needed to make the Macintosh work. So verbatim was contracted by Apple, and this is when Steve Jobs was leading the Mac team as a group of forty five people over in Milpitas. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard a lot of tales about that group where they autographed the uh, inside of the, the the case and all that sort oh, of yeah. thing. And, Yep. And verbatim was the one that made those discs. And uh, I was one of the team of people that developed that little metal hub in the center of that disc. And that's what made it possible to get 135 tracks per inch as opposed to like 50 in those original floppies. And, and that was enough that would allow the original Mac to work. And uh, so, yeah, I had a little bit to do with that little metal piece in the middle of uh of those three and a half inch disc. And, that, that's quite and, a legacy. And I did get to know Steve Jobs. He he would come in every day, uh, wanting his disc. You know, it's like we <laughs> we're supposed to get him fifty discs overnight. If you didn't have but three, he'd cuss everybody and pitch fits. He he, he was exactly the personality that you saw in the movie. Um, <laughs> but he wouldn't do it with me. Uh, he he would pick on. I was I was the only person in that R and D group that didn't have a doctorate. And he, he had those PhDs, uh, mostly from China and India, scared to death. You know, they'd be hiding under the desk when Steve would come <laughs> in. And he tried it on me one time, and I told him, dude, I'm from Hazard County. I'll smack you right in the damn mouth if you mess with me. <laughs> and, and, and that did it, and huh? he never bothered me a bit. We, we were buddies. <laughs> I even got to, to, uh, to, to break in on the party over at the Super Bowl at Stanford that year with Steve and John Scully and all those dudes. Oh, we've got a lot more stories that we're going to have to cover the next time I get you on here related to that. That's so the the um, did you come to Northern California by yourself, Joe? No, no, no. I was uh, married, not to the same person I am now. 
Okay. But uh, we we found out while I was at Stanford that uh, we were going to become parents for the first time. So my uh, oldest child, is uh, my son Daniel, was born while I was a, uh, a graduate student at Stanford. Interesting. Well, one of the things I'm going to want to ask you about when we go into the next segment is what it was like in 1984 in Silicon Valley uh, and what you were doing to keep yourself uh, involved in the Silicon Valley scene during that time. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest Joe Wallace on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Welcome back, Coachella Valley. I am here with my guest, Joe Wallace. Joe is currently the CEO and Chief uh, Innovation Officer for the Coachella Valley Economic Partnership. Joe, I want to uh, take you back to Northern California for just a moment because I'm interested about that time. Uh, you came here 1984. Uh, Silicon Valley was hopping at that point. What was it like for you, and did you experience any culture shock? Um, you know, so I was surrounded by other engineers. And <laughs> <laughs> so you talked the same language. <laughs> you know, so yes, yes, we, we, we spoke the same languages and, uh, you know, we, we were all into making things happen. Um, you know, I have a, a different accent than everyone there, <laughs> but, but it wasn't a Northern California accent. You have a Northern California accent. Most of the people on my team were immigrants from from Germany, Austria, England, uh, you know, India, China. And so their accents were unfamiliar to everybody and even to each other. Yeah. So, so we all had to learn to understand each other. And I, you know, I taught them to say ain't and some things like that. (laughs) (laughs) You Americanized them. (laughs) I did. I did. You know, I taught them all the bad words and they, they returned the favor. You know, I can cuss in seven languages and it's largely because of those guys. Um, So that was, I didn't really have any culture shock at work. Um, I had never lived in a culture that was so driven by the uh, the drive for the legal tender. Mm-hmm. And so outside of work, when I would meet people, you know, it was like, man, everybody up here is 18 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to become a multimillionaire. And, uh, and, and I certainly rural Kentucky was, was not that, you know, it was more, people you had a job and you wanted to, to you know the american dream but the dream was different than the dream up there dreams in the valley were way bigger than anything i had ever dreamed of or experienced in my life hmm. and uh i'm proud to say it i fit in pretty well with that crowd i'm not surprised at all joe so 
Um, after Stanford, one of the things that uh, you have done several times in your life is had to kind of reinvent yourself. And I'm fascinated about yeah. that story. So talk to me, what happened after Stanford? Uh, well, I stayed with verbatim. And uh, we, we finished the uh, demonstration of the uh, optical drive. And uh, we, we, you know, in the summer of 1985, uh, you know, we were interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Electrical Engineering Times. And, and you know, we, we were in all of the newspapers all over the world for, for debuting a technology that had never been proven before outside of a, uh, a physics lab. Hmm. And uh, so, so I, this is something I would have never, ever expected in my whole life. Uh, I was one of the three people who were selected to go to the National Computer Conference at McCormick Place in Chicago. And uh, you know, we made the debut of the, the equipment and everything. And, and oddly enough, verbatim ends up a few months after that being bought out by Eastman Kodak. And uh, I'm pretty sure that had a whole lot to do with it. <laughs> and uh, so that was my first taste of knowing a person who really cashed out big on stock. A guy, a guy named Reed Anderson had started verbatim uh, in his house. He, he made the first floppy disk in uh, his wife Polly's skillet, and, and <laughs> you know she threatened to bang him over the head with it for ruining her skillet. But uh, he he came into my office one day and he called about three of us. Oh, he says, "Looky here," and he, and he had a check for thirty million dollars. Wow. <laughs> Which, you know, that would have bought almost every house in the town I grew up in. <laughs> so eventually his wife got so, over the skillet problem. She did. Yes. Yeah, I think she was over it well before <laughs> that. He was, he was serving as chairman emeritus, and he was a tinkerer. So he hung out down in the R&D D group a lot. And then we all got to know him and had a good time. But that was, you know, when I thought, man, I wonder if I could ever do something like that. So that that was really the beginning of my interest in becoming an entrepreneur. That's a word I never heard until I was in uh, Econ 101 hmm. in college. There was the, you know this this stuff about entrepreneurship, saving the world, not back then. Big big company close is what would save the world back then. Um, so what was it? Was know, it so the, I, was it the money? Was it the wanting to be your own boss? What was it that interested you in the entrepreneur life? All of it. <laughs> I, I I like independence, but I like, and, and I really don't care much about a pile of cash. It's the freedom that cash could bring. Hmm. So, you know, Reed, you know, they, I told him, I said, man, you could get on a first class flight and never get off. And you still wouldn't pay the, you, you still couldn't even spend the interest off of that $30 million. Now, interest rates back then, as, as you know, as a banker, were 10 to 15%. Yep. So, so he could have gone out with that money and made, you know, $4 million, $5 million a year just in interest, uh, no risk. And, uh, you know, to get 4 or $5 million a year off of interest these days, you, you need about $100 million. Absolutely. <laughs> So that was your. This is your making your move towards entrepreneurship. What was your first? Exactly. Yeah. What was your first foot in the water there, Joe? Well, you know, I had. I realized later in life that I had always been one, because if I wanted a bicycle, I didn't go ask my parents for money. I would, you know, but 
trim weeds or, you know, things like I did the lemonade stand. I'd pick blackberries and go door to door selling them. <laughs> and, and it was to get things that I wanted. And it's like, you know, ideas and the ability to actualize ideas, they do the same thing, except they pay a whole lot more than a glass of lemonade on the curb for, for a dime or a nickel or something. Yes. So uh, it's, it's about self-determination all day, every day. And uh, it, I, I've, I've never, I don't, I wouldn't want to be Elon Musk. I, I've never, ever wanted the kind of money that it would, that where you'd have to hire a bodyguard for yourself, your kids, your kin and, and everything, you know, just, just a, a silent, quiet back then I was always be a millionaire, get 1 million. I, yeah, the threshold nowadays is probably five, but uh, you know, I, I like being country. I like wearing jeans and t-shirts and, and doing kind of whatever I want without having to have a guard and uh, you, you a certain threshold of wealth beyond which uh, you, you do have to have a lot of security. And I, and I never wanted to be there, but I do want to have the freedom to do things that, uh, that, that make me smile. And, uh, and I've always wanted to do things that make the world a better place. And, you know, that, that's why I'm where I am now. That's why I moved into nonprofits at about the age of 50. Uh, you know, my, my plan was learn until you're 30 earn until you're 50 and then give back after that. And, and I've pretty much followed that plan. You have absolutely done that. Before we get too far down the road on that and you're moved down here to the Valley, um, I talked about at the very beginning of this thing that you're kind of the Coachella Valley's version of the world's most interesting man. Um, there's a lot of things about you. Our paths have crossed in a number of different ways, not just geographically, but you tried to make it in the music business for a while, didn't you? I did, and uh, it was it was a barrel of fun. <laughs> you know, I uh, my first job that involved a paycheck was working at a Dairy Queen back in Sturgis, Kentucky, and my first ten paychecks went and uh, I spent them on a Carvin guitar. Carvin is a custom guitar place that was in Escondido down near San Diego, and I spent two hundred bucks to get that thing and learned to play it at home. I never had a, a lesson. Um, yeah, I'd look in the books and see what, what made chords and then just, just, you know, just kind of sit around and make noises. And, uh, you know, I was in garage bands and then we started doing, uh, play, uh, not plays, but proms and things like that. But when I was in Memphis, I lived in this apartment complex and, and you're going to recognize some of these names. Do you remember Rick D's disco? Oh yeah. Disco, disco duck. duck. <laughs> he lived in the same apartment complex with me. I, I knew him when he didn't have money for gas to get to the wow. radio station. <laughs> I think he's and, still and doing also, something. Yeah. Uh, you know, he has leveraged that dumb little ditty <laughs> in, into more more money than you can imagine. I bet. So, yes, he's still Disco out duck. there. Rick Dees and his cast of idiots. And uh, you know what? They're... They're cast idiots all over, but he, he started that term. <laughs> so, and, and the other ones that were in there was a guy named Jimmy Jameson and the voice that sang Eye of the Tiger. That was him. Oh, he was from in a Survivor. Band in Memphis. Yes, called, yeah. they were called Target. And I used to practice and play some with Target all along. I knew all the guys. And they moved to Los Angeles at, at about the time I was heading to college. For the, for the second time, the real college. And, uh, you know, 
he died a couple of years ago. Mm. And and I'm the only one of that original bunch down there that's still alive. Really? And uh, Yeah, don't have anything going on. But I always thought, you know, I would have been the guitarist on Eye of the Tiger if I had come to Los Angeles with them. <laughs> that would <laughs> have been amazing. I, and I'd probably have a tombstone back in Appalachia with my name on it. <laughs> what was the name of the band, Joe? Uh, Target is uh, Target. what I was in. Then, then I was in another one later called Invader. And, and you know, we did a backup act. Uh, we were the backup band for the Cars a couple of times, and they got to know some of the some of the big things. So, yeah, I've, I've been on stage in front of seven, 8,000 people, and all, all the stories about the, you know, the, the pot and the girls and all that sort of stuff. It's absolutely true, but but I'm going to say something. I have never, ever tried any narcotic of any kind in my whole life because I had a friend that blew his mind out when I was 14, and I was part of a team that had to hold him down, and he ended up dying of a heart attack in his 30s. But uh, oh, wow. seeing what it did to him was enough, that, and believe me, I've, I've had offers, uh, and uh, but that was enough to scare the daylights out of me for any kind of uh, any, anything that's not legal now. Let's put it that way. I imagine. Were you still doing music when you went to Northern California? Uh, only at home, yeah. uh, not not professionally. And you're still and doing still, it at home. You know, get get the stuff out and play. Yeah, I do. I'm not good. At, I'm not not ready for stage. But uh, <laughs> if somebody told me in three weeks I needed to. To, to get on stage and do a song or two, I think I could get myself ready for it. Uh, John was trying to put together uh, Ian Anderson and me on the radio show a couple of years ago when Jethro, Jethro Tull came Tull. down to Fantasy Springs, and, and I, I sat home and I figured out Aqualung and <laughs> and and locomotive breath, and I you know I was hoping, man, I'm going to get to go on there and, and do these songs with Ian Anderson, but. Didn't happen, but it would have been a ball. I did get to see him though, and, and the tribe let me sit on the third row. So that would have been amazing. Yeah, I got I got to see him very early in his career. All right, Joe, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to move you into the Coachella Valley because you've done some wonderful things here. Thank you for listening. This is the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. And the where. This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. Here's Randy. Welcome back, Coachella Valley. We are here on iHub Radio with my guest, Joe Wallace. Joe, we're here on the last segment here, and I'm going to have to bypass a whole bunch of years. <laughs> And probably three or four different careers for you. But I want to talk to you about what brought you to the Coachella Valley. And then we're going to finish off the show here talking a little bit about 
more of your dreams and desires for this valley. So talk to me a little bit about what brought you here. Uh, I was recruited to, to come out here by CVEP to start the innovation hub that's uh, in Palm Springs now. And, you know, it's uh, Karen and I were looking for, you know, we had about four or five places. It's like, okay, these are good places to retire, and that would make them an even greater place to go and, and work the last 10, 15 years that you're going to work. And this was this place was on the list. And, uh, you know, I had interviewed in uh, Daytona and Texas, and and this, the, uh, the iHub opportunity was really attractive to me personally because I could, you know, be technical, which it's hard for me not to go that route. Uh, and, you're an engineer. Uh, and, yeah, yes, and but but it also was an opportunity to coach people who essentially wanted to do things that I had already done, and uh, yeah, you know, so the 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 offer was made. Uh, I accepted. We moved out. It's been nine years and several weeks now, and uh, we we've never regretted the move. We we love living here. We enjoy our home. We enjoy our friends, and uh, we both enjoy our careers here. So question being is how how long to work i don't know longer (laughs) (laughs) that's my answer right now longer (laughs) yeah i'm counting on that being your answer here for a little while so describe for us a little bit for the people who don't know the ihub um process what's the ihub uh, incubator all about joe Uh, the ihub is about inspiring or attracting people who have an idea that's in a business sector that pays way above average wages and you know so tech fits that description so that's that's what we want to do we want to get people in who are in in the idea stage or emerging stage coach them try to help them grow their businesses and ultimately the uh the metrics are how many companies can come out of the ihub stay here employ people at Wages that are much higher than the averages here because our uh, our dominating industries here are not good paying industries. And one of the one of the missing things in the Coachella Valley is large industry that pays a upper middle class wage or and uh, that that's what we try to do with the iHub. And you know these days we have one in Palm Desert. We have a, a small uh, prototype one in Indio that'll grow and. COD gets that campus uh, built out more over there. And then, of course, we have the Accelerator Campus and the original iHub in downtown Palm Springs. Well, I know that the iHub has uh, brought in a number of different types of business opportunities in the Valley that have turned out to be very successful. Uh, for, for those of you who don't know, Joe is also in his position has been a keynote speaker at the annual uh, Coachella Valley Economic Partnership annual economic summits. Joe has also written a book over the last couple of years called Living Outside the Box, a fascinating book, Joe. And in the last few minutes that we have here, I want to talk a little bit about continuing on with the messages that you've given at the summits and some of what you talk about in terms of living outside the box and what we need to do in the Valley here to make sure that we are going to remain viable for the next, uh, for the foreseeable future. You know, the Valley, and, and I, I've been speaking about this for the whole nine years I'm here. Uh, we 
are overly dependent on tourism. And the box here kind of is tourism. It's a very well-developed business, sec- business sector. It employs a whole lot of people. It brings a lot of interesting people into town that you, that you can get to know and visit. But uh, it is the lowest-paying business sector in the Coachella Valley, and it's the highest employer. 25% of our jobs are directly in hospitality. Another 25% are indirect, and that means they work in retail businesses that mostly cater to tourists. So our business makeup limits our capacity to be essential. And that's why we got hit so hard this year with the pandemic is that our businesses have been deemed to be non-essential. And so now the goal of the iHub is not just to have better jobs. It's to have better jobs that are essential. So the next time something comes along, like a, you know, the Y2K or, or the real estate bust, and then now the pandemic, that we don't have to suffer to the level that our businesses are suffering now. Um, we have to find a way to open up our businesses, open up our economy so that we don't lose them. We're, we're going to lose possibly 40, 50% of our retail and restaurant businesses, uh, but people will replace them, but but the human capital damage from the lockdowns is just mess. And the three places that suffer the most in the United States are the Coachella Valley, Las Vegas, and Maui, because all of the eggs are essentially in one basket. Even governments here have suffered because of overdependence on one one thing. And you know, but when I was preparing for this year's summit, I was looking at the big things. The big things that we need haven't changed, but this pandemic should be a catalyzing event that will allow our leaders to focus very hard on the things that we to emerge with hope for the future of a diversified economy and and getting this tourism industry back on its feet because it does provide a lot of money. To, uh, to our taxing authorities and and even to people who work here. So, but we're but we're really back to three things: a university, a full four-year research university that offers technical degrees. So that's for the workforce of the future. Local venture capital investment, because venture capitalists want the companies that they put big money into to be where they can watch them, and we don't have one. And then. You know, the third one is to keep is to establish and maintain state of the art communications, and that means bandwidth that's at a gigabit or higher, and it means a cell phone that will work all the way from one end of the valley to the other. So <laughs> let's focus regionally and get it done. <laughs> we would take that, Joe. Thank you so much. It's my honor to work with you at CBEP every day. Thanks for everything you've done for this valley, everybody. This has been the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Ha <laughs> ha